Hello, I'm Pastor Marshall Oaks, and I'm the lead pastor at Red Hills Church in Tallahassee, Florida. And you're about to listen to a message from our Sunday morning gathering. If you enjoy what you hear, please leave us some feedback on iTunes. And if you really like what God is doing at our church, consider supporting the ministry work at redhillschurch.com give. Thanks, and now for some Bible teaching. All right. This is, uh, this is my favorite time of the week. Are you guys ready? All right, let's do it. Matthew chapter 12. You have your Bibles. Go ahead and turn there as you're turning there to Matthew chapter 12. Last week in Matthew chapter 11, I'll just give you a quick recap. Um, what was happening was Jesus was uh, bringing the hammer down on Israel. And what he was doing was he was addressing the fact that he was going from town to town in the northern part of Israel around the Sea of Galilee. He was healing, he was raising the dead, he was teaching, and the people just didn't respond. Their hearts were indifferent to him. Jesus, God in flesh, was right there. He was walking into people's store, buying bread from them. He was, he was teaching on the side of the mountain. He was, he was feeding thousands of people. He was calming storms. There was no shortage of signs and wonders that described the fact that he is who he says he was, on top of the fact that he was constantly fulfilling prophecy everywhere you looked. This was the guy. We knew this was the guy. And people just eh, they didn't really have strong feelings either way about it, which is tough because that's where most of the church lives. And we'll go through the motions, man. We'll show up, we'll do the thing, we'll, we'll be a part of whatever we feel like we need to be a part of, but deep down, there's no real affection for Jesus. I mean, we like him, we don't really love him. We love the things of this world, but we don't treasure him. And these cities, they had Jesus. It would be like, it would be like if, if instead of me standing here, Jesus himself walked up on the stage and started teaching us. And our hearts were, meh, I've heard better. Or, oh, it was a good service, huh? It's pretty good. It was nice that God stepped down, was among us. But I gotta get to work. I got lunch plans. This was the heart condition of the people of Israel. And Jesus' response in Matthew chapter 11 is he pronounced a series of woe to you. Woe to the person who is so close to the things of God, but has no affection for God. Who has a, has a greater desire for the things of God than God himself. Who has a greater respect for the things of God than God himself than the structure or the organization of the local church than God himself. Woe to us who are playing these games because we feel like we have to and not because we've been redeemed. I was reading a book this week and the author said, it's important for us to remember that there was a point in our life where we were as close to hell as I am standing to this table right now. And you can't forget that. You can't forget what he's done for us. Because when you do, it makes you an ungrateful person. And you start valuing things that, that you shouldn't be valuing. And this was the condition of Israel. But the, the, the problem to stop there, because there was a group of people in Israel who were just indifferent, but there was another group of people in, in, in Israel who were not just indifferent, but they were actively rejecting him. It's one thing to be in the presence of God and say, I mean, it's whatever. But it's another thing to be in the presence of God and say, no, I don't want any of this. This is wrong. I want something different. You, God, are wrong. And this is the camp we're talking about today in Matthew chapter 12. And this is, the majority of these people were the leadership in Israel. These were the Pharisees, the scribes, the Sadducees. These are the people who regularly studied scripture, who loved this, man, they loved this book. They were regularly in this book. But they didn't really care to listen about what it meant. So they knew it, but they didn't know what it meant. They knew it in and out, but they didn't know what it meant. And while a majority of us in church today were just kind of indifferent, Man, this is a thing we did, we'll do, and then after we leave, we'll go. There are others of us who, who treasure the things of God, but we don't treasure how it applies to us. We spend most of our time looking at this and saying, man, how can I get this person that I'm friends with to see this? 
Not how can I see this? Not how am I blind to this? No, no, no. When you're done and you leave here, your takeaway will be, I need to send this message to this person. Not, I've got to listen to this and I've got to chew on this. I've got to read through this because this, there's stuff in here I'm blind to. No, we live our life convinced that everybody else is wrong and it's our job to police them. That's the people, the religious people in Matthew 12 that Jesus deals with. And, and it, he's not any kinder to them than he was in Matthew 11. There's a, a thing we need to understand as we approach 12, and that is that when we know the Word of God, but we don't listen to what it means, it creates a passion inside of us for the things of God, but a hardness towards God Himself. And that's where we have to be careful. Because you can be walking this church thing for a solid 30, 40 years and know the ins and the outs of all of it and be completely hard to the spirit moving in your life. To be deaf to what God is speaking to you. It is possible, and I don't want that for you. So with that in mind, let's approach chapter 12 with the possibility that you might be in that camp. I'm not saying you are, and I'm not trying to be too critical on you, but there is a posture in all of us that says, I've got this figured out. I've heard plenty of sermons about this. I'm not here to be transformed. I'm here because this is what we do now that I have been transformed, and my job is now to help other people. Well, that is part of the equation, but the point where you say, okay, I've had enough, that's when you stop growing. And you're either growing or you're shrinking back. There's no just staying still. So there's either a desire in you to want to grow or there's a staleness to your Christianity. And that's what Matthew chapter 12 rubs up against today. Are we ready? Matthew 12, let's get into it. Matthew chapter 12, verse 1. It says, At that time Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry, and they began to pluck the heads of grain and to eat. Now, before we go any further, this was completely lawful to do. Okay, in Leviticus 19.9, we're told according to Moses' law, God gave to Moses, that when you create your grain field, you should not harvest the corners of it. And that is so that people who are less fortunate and don't have grain fields can walk by your grain field and pick a little bit and have something to eat without feeling like got a, there's nothing to feed their families. So when you plant a field, you don't harvest the corners of it because those are for the foreigners, the, the sojourners, the people who are just passing through the field who need something to eat. So, and it's also reiterated in Deuteronomy 23.5. So there's a precedent for what they're doing to be completely fine. What they're doing and eating is not the issue. The problem from the Pharisees' perspective is when they're actually doing it on the Sabbath. And this is where we get to verse two. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. And he said to them, have you not read what David did when he was hungry and those who were with them? How he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests? Or, or have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath, the priests in the temple, they profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? What's he talking about there? He's talking about the fact that priests have to work on the Sabbath. There's more sacrifices being brought on the Sabbath than any other day. So for a priest, a Sabbath isn't a rest day. They're actually working. But you don't have any issue with that. I tell you, verse 6, something greater than the temple is here. And if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Now let's go to verse 9. Let's go into 14 because a similar issue comes up in the next few verses. Verse 9, it says, When they went on from there and entered in the synagogue, a man was there with a withered hand. And they asked him, uh, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? And they said this, they might accuse him. And he said to them, which one of you has a sheep if it falls into a pit on a Sabbath? Do you not take a hold of it and lift it out? How much more valuable is a man than a sheep? So is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath? 
If you're heading to church on a Sunday morning and you drive by a lake and there is a sheep drowning and a baby drowning, who do you go to first? We know what we would do. And if we know what we would do, why don't we apply that logic to how we understand God's word? This is Jesus' argument. Then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. The man stretched it out and it was restored, healthy like the other. The Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. All right, so Matthew is showing us in the first 14 verses how the leadership is actively rejecting Jesus. In this specific situation, he's demonstrating how they're actively rejecting with how they're treating Sabbath. So they come to Jesus. They say, look, Jesus, there's a command, Exodus 20, verse 8. Got to keep the Sabbath holy. It doesn't seem like your boys are doing that. So what's the deal? And Jesus responds by saying, okay, I understand your, your critique, but let's go to the Scripture. Let's, let's use Scripture and logic to interpret. Because essentially what's happening here is that when God said, remember the Sabbath and keep it holy, that really wasn't enough for you guys. The issue here is that you saw the law as too vague, and so you felt the responsibility to clarify God's words as if they were not God. And in doing that, what you did was you elevated yourself above God because you said his words were not clear enough, so you started critiquing them and adding commentary, which in and of itself is not an issue. The issue is you started making your commentary the law rather than the law the law. And so when you make an issue of my boys eating on the Sabbath, they're not actually breaking a law that God commanded, they're breaking a law that you made, and the issue is in your heart. So let's go to Scripture and let's interpret Scripture with Scripture. And he says, he quotes a story from 1 Samuel 21. He says, don't you remember when David went and ate the bread of the presence? So essentially what happened was David was running from King Saul. Him and his friends were being hunted. And they were hungry, and so they ran to uh, the tabernacle. And the priest was there. And David asked the priest, hey, can, can I get some bread for my, 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 my family, my people? And they're like, no, 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 that's the bread of the presence, you can't eat it. But David says, no, 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 you don't understand, we're hungry. And also I'm the king. And the priest had to make a decision. Do I recognize David's authority, number one, and number two, do I show mercy to people who are hungry? The priest made a choice, and the choice the priest made was, all right, go ahead and do it. And David ate the bread of the presence. The priest said, okay, I'm going to choose human dignity. I'm going to show mercy over the rituals that we've had passed down. It says you can't touch this. So that's the first example. He says, look, you guys know this story. You love this story. You love King David. Something greater than David is here. And if you liked what he did, how come you're not like what I did? But that's not, I'll, I'm going to stop there. I'll continue. And he, he quotes um, in Numbers 28, 9 through 10, how the priests are commanded to be in the temple on the times of the Sabbath in order to accept sacrifice. He says, if the guys are in there working, they're doing work on the Sabbath. How is that any different? What's, what's the issue here? Don't you understand that something better than the temple is here? And then he goes and he talks about how quickly we are to save a lamb on the Sabbath, but we have an issue with helping a person. And so what Jesus is saying in the first 14 verses is that, look, something better than the, than the temple worship, than David, than the people that you look up to is here, and that something better is me. And what I'm doing is I'm clarifying the things that have always been murky to you, and they haven't been murky because the Scripture is murky. They're murky because your dark hearts are making them murky. And so I'm here to open the blind eyes, and the blind eyes are your blind eyes. You don't want to hear because you don't want to hear. But I'm here to fix that. And what I'm trying to say is that people are more valuable than habits and rituals and things. Because people are image bearers. They were made in God's image. And so we should treasure and we should value people over our habits and our rituals and our stuff and our money and our organizations 
and our programs and our processes. People are more valuable. And if you hit a situation where you have to treat somebody with less dignity in order to honor your system, then the system is what should buckle, not treating someone with dignity. This is what he's saying. This is what he's here to clarify. He's saying essentially what he says in John 13, 35. When you love God's people, you love God. You will be known in the world and among the people of God by your love. Loving my people is the same as loving me. So if you're driving to church in order to worship and love your God, but there is somebody on the side of the road stranded, do you say, Lord, send them some help? I don't wanna be late for church. Or do you pull over and you help that person and then you miss Sunday worship? What do you do? I think deep down we know what we should do but we don't wanna do it because it's an inconvenience. It's much easier to cling to our structure and our process and our predictability than to get down into the nitty gritty of people's messy lives. But you don't get a pass because the people of God get down into the nitty gritty. Why, why do we do that? Because that's what our God did. Our God took on human flesh and came down and dwelt among us because he loved us. The God of the universe got down on his knees and washed the feet of his disciples. Why? So that there would be no confusion in our mind about the lengths we would go to to serve one another. This is what he's saying. You guys have it all wrong because you're valuing the wrong thing. But here's the ominous part. This is the scary part. Matthew leaves verse 14. He says, but the Pharisees, so they just heard this. They're just, they got slapped upside the face with the truth. Jesus in flesh is standing there interpreting the scriptures the right way, saying, no, mercy. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Not look how much I gave up for you, God, but, but, but look at how I treat people around me. He's there interpreting, showing the people. He's right there in front of them. What is their response? The Pharisees went out and conspired against him on how to destroy him. Rather than submitting and following, or or even, or, or even walking away and considering, they plotted. This is the active rejection that lives in the hearts of some men that Matthew is showing and warning us against when you're confronted with the truth, you don't consider or humble yourself or get low. You dig in your heels and you argue even more. That is not the posture of the people of God. When we come before our king and he shines that light of truth on your heart and he says, this, is, this thing is not okay. You don't dig in your heels and create an argument like some lawyer, no, 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 you don't understand. Give me a minute. I will convince you, I'll change your mind. I am the exception to the rule. Just give me a minute and I'll show you why you should change the way you think about some things or God, this is why you're wrong. That's not the posture of the people of God. So very, the first 14 verses, we've got the Pharisees, they're They're conspiring against him. They're trying to figure out how they're gonna plot and destroy him. And Jesus knows it. This is where we're picking verse 15. It says, Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there. And many followed him, and he healed them all. And he ordered them not to make him known. So he's healing people, but he's telling them, don't tell anybody, keep this to yourself. Why did he do this? Well, he did this because it fulfilled what was spoken of him by the prophet Isaiah. And what the prophet Isaiah says in Isaiah 42, behold, my servant whom I have chosen. This guy, the father says to the son, this is my servant. This is the one whom I'm well pleased. I've chosen him, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased. I'm gonna put my spirit upon him 
and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. What's he gonna do? What's he gonna be like? Is he gonna be like every other king that walked the earth with a sword in his hand, sticking it to everybody he comes across just to remind people who's in charge? No, that's not who he is. He's not gonna quarrel or cry out loud. He's not gonna ride down the streets on a white horse shouting at the top of his lungs, I'm the king, follow me or die. Nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break. And a smoldering wick he will not quench until he brings justice to victory. And in his name, the Gentiles will hope. So Jesus knew the leaders were plotting his death, and rather than take them on and defend himself or take offense, he went about doing what God told him to do. If there wasn't a better lesson for today, that's it. When people come against you, the best thing for you to do is keep doing what God told you to do. When people want to pick fights, and they want to argue, and they want to call your character into question. Good luck spending your time spinning your wheels, trying to defend yourself against a world that does not like you and will never like you because they never liked Jesus. And you're not better than him. What you should rather do, rather spend your time doing, is doing exactly what God told you to do and not trying to get people to like you. More ministry has had the rug pulled out from under it because people wanted folks to like them than any other, any other thing that has stopped ministry. What cuts ministry? What cuts the legs out from under it? It being filled with people who want to be liked. What ruins churches? Leaders who want people to like them. What Jesus does in response to people plotting against him is he keeps on doing what he's supposed to be doing. And what is that? Being the servant that God chose. He's a suffering servant. He's a powerful king, but he's not like the other kings who've always walked the earth. He's the kind of king who's not gonna break a bruised reed. He's the kind of king who's not going to smolder a wick or quench a wick that is smoldering. What do those mean? Those are images for the state of Israel and for us today. Who are the bruised reeds? We are. We're the bruised reeds. We're the people who have long histories of being abused by church, by people in the world, by our own family. We've got lots of scars. We're the bruised reeds. We are the smoldering wick. In the first century, lamps, they kind of looked like a little teapot. Oil sat in the front and then a wick sat up here on the top and it kind of went down into the oil and then you would light the um, the wick and it would, like a candle, and it would pull the oil up into it, and that's how you would light your home with a lamp. The problem is that if the wick wasn't good, it would just smolder. It wouldn't actually light. It would just create more smoke. And so what you would do in that situation was you would snuff it out, you would clip the wick, you put a new one in there until you actually got fire. But that's not what the Lord does. When we're at a place where we're not actually producing fire, we're just producing a bunch of smoke, he's not gonna snuff us out. He's not gonna kick us out. He's not gonna take the bruised among us and say, I've had enough. He's not gonna break you off. He's not gonna take the smoldering among us, the people who are just full of smoke and like talking a lot, but not actually doing a lot. He's not gonna kick you out yet. He's got grace and mercy for you. And if he has grace and mercy for you, then that means I need to have grace and mercy for you. That means you need to have grace and mercy for you. That means you need to have grace and mercy for the smoldering wicks around us, filling the rooms full of a bunch of smoke. Because one day, in the process of God not snuffing them out, but actually letting them get to a place where they're gonna, they're gonna burn. And let me tell you something, the person, the, the, the most difficult people in the world, when they finally get it, when they finally are set on fire and their life is no longer about them, those are some of the greatest leaders the church has ever seen. 
Look at Paul. This dude made his entire life about chasing down and killing Christians. He was a terrorist. That's the modern day word we would call him. But when God got a hold of him, he's the guy who wrote two thirds of the books we talk about every time we gather as a church. And so what is it that God's doing? He's not casting us out, he's pulling us in. And this is what Jesus is doing in the midst of people who hate and reject him. So he's quoting, just for your reference, he's quoting uh, in uh, verses 18 through 21, he's quoting Isaiah 42, one through four. I encourage you to go read it on your own. But this is important for Matthew to clarify because what we're getting into next in verse 22 is some of the hardest words that Jesus is gonna speak to these Pharisees. And I just gotta, you gotta, you gotta have the right setup for this because what's coming next doesn't make sense unless you understand his position already. And Matthew wants to make that clear. There's no confusion as we move forward. When it comes to Jesus, there's only one decision that you can make. You either accept or you reject. That is the only two options. You get one question and there are two answers. I said last week, there are not 19 different gods that you can take or ways or paths that you can take to get to God. There is only Jesus. He's the only doorway we can walk through. It's, it's him or it's nothing. And Matthew is making that abundantly clear because what is coming next is a challenge on Jesus' authority and how he works these miracles, which is one of the most offensive things that's gonna happen in scripture. Jesus responds very harshly. And if we don't understand the context, it's not gonna make any sense. But before we get into it, we gotta just understand Matthew's making this abundantly clear. Jesus is here to help us understand what all of this has meant so far. He's the, he's the f- complete fulfillment of it. And he is the servant that God chose. He is God himself in human form. Here among us to not break the bruised reeds or smolder the wick or quench the smoldering wicks. He's here to bring us hope. He's here to bring victory. Amen? So here's what's coming next, verse 22. After that, a demon possessed, well, sorry, a demon oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to him and he healed him so that the man spoke and saw. Man, praise Jesus that our God has the authority in flesh to cast demons out of people's bodies so they can see and they can hear again. But praise Jesus that our God has the authority to cast that darkness deep down in your soul out and bring redemption for all eternity so that for eternity we don't have to suffer demonic oppression. That's the umbrella that all of the scripture we're about to read sits under. Jesus is not just walking around saying, I feel like healing you, and I feel like healing you, not you, but maybe, yeah, you. He's doing what the Father is telling him to do, and it is to a very specific end, and that end is every miracle he performs points back to one thing. He is the Son of God who has redemption power over sin. Every, everything, healing blind eyes, That is about the spiritual condition of blindness we live with. Jesus has the authority to do it in the flesh. Certainly he has the authority to do it in the spirit. This is what this is all about. That's why he heals people. That's why he casts out demonic oppression because the kingdom of darkness has no place with the kingdom of light. They don't fellowship together. So with that in mind, verse 23, all the people were amazed saying, man, can this be the son of David? Is this the dude? Is he finally here? We've been waiting on him. Is he here? Is this the guy? Verse 24, but the Pharisees heard it and they said, ah, it's only Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. It's by Satan's power that he casts out demons. Knowing their thoughts, verse 25, he said to them, every kingdom Divided against itself is laid waste. No city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he's divided against himself. How then can his kingdom stand? And if I, if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? 
Therefore, they're going to be your judges. But it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons. Then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. All right, now we're wading into Jesus' talky territory and we're like, okay, you lost me. I had you up until that point. I was following you, and then all of a sudden you started talking about a strong man, and I'm not sure if this is connected. I don't get it. Jesus has this way of locking eyes, and he's talking here, and we got you, and we got you, and then he's talking in like, He's playing four-dimensional chess. He's on a nut, completely different plane. He's bringing in kingdom things. He's like, look, this thing that you understand, you know how you put a seed in the ground and it plants this you know, I got that. Boom, all of a sudden we're talking about the kingdom of God and bearing fruit in our own life and cultivating that and a seed falling on this ground and being stolen. Ah, uh, you lost me. That's what's happening here. He's, he's honoring these people by saying, I'm right here, but I'm also 19 moves ahead of you, and what you think you understand, you don't even have a grasp on. So there are spiritual principles at work that I'm gonna bring in to explain my point. I'm not trying to teach a sermon on demonology, okay? Jesus is gonna get into some weird stuff about demons and wandering the earth and coming back seven times stronger. His point is not to give us theology about how demons work. His point is saying there are some things in the spiritual realm that you can kind of understand and apply here that I'm gonna use in a way that illuminate the stuff that is most important. Are you following? So let's go with it. So he's talking to them about casting out demons, and then he starts talking about essentially about the spiritual principle behind it. How can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods? How can you come into a dude's house and take his stuff unless you first bind the strong man? Once that happens, then you can plunder his house. Let me tell you something, guys. Whoever is not with me is against me. And whoever is not gathered with me scatters. Why? Because Jesus is the one coming in to bind the strong man. The strong man is sin. The strong man is the kingdom of darkness. The strong man is the darkness that's gripped our hearts since birth. And Jesus is coming in to bind the strong man and cast that out to fill our homes with him. And this guy who gets his demon cast out of him, this is just a small parable of what he wants to do in the hearts of all of us. Right? So what that requires is for you to first understand that you gotta be with me. There's no binding of the strong man unless you're willing to accept the fact that somebody has the power, more power to come in and bind him and take authority over him. So whoever's not with me is against me. Whoever does not gather with me scatters. Therefore, I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven, people, but the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. Whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or the age to come. So let's, let's, just for context, go back to how we got here. The Pharisees declared that Jesus, his power came from Satan. And this prompted Jesus to respond by making some specific points. And here's the points that he makes. First, it's impossible for Satan to cast out Satan. Why? Because a house divided against itself can't stand. And then he gives us this illustration. He says, look, this principle applies to kingdoms. It applies to cities. It applies to homes. You guys know this. It is a principle that's worked out in daily life and also at work in the spiritual life. You can't have two leaders with two separate visions running an organization and have that organization be successful. Right? We all agree with that. In your home, you can't have the two parental units having a complete opposite approach to things like parenting and managing money and spiritual discipleship running in opposite directions because you will never go anywhere, you will never make up any ground, you will never move forward because you're constantly running against each other. Jesus is like, you guys understand this. So I don't understand how you think that Satan can cast out Satan when this is a principle that we kind of all agree on and we all see at work. 
But then he, he introduces the second concept, to overcome that uh, opposing forces, you need somebody to come in and bind the strong man. You need somebody to overtake inside your soul the thing that is running things for you. The strong man in this case was a demon, but the strong man in our case is our own flesh, our own pride, our own lust, our own sin. So if we understand that a house divided against itself can't stand, if we understand that in order to fix that, we need somebody to come in and bind the strong man, then we have to understand also that Jesus is the one who's come in to bind all strong men and set the captives free. But the way he does this is not by making deals with Satan. Now we're getting to the whole like blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. This is important. Because what these guys were saying, okay, Jesus... I see that you have authority over darkness, but the only way you have that authority over darkness is because you made a deal with the devil. It's probably because when you were out in the desert and he tempted you, you gave in to temptation. Meaning, you don't have all authority, meaning God does not have all authority. He shares authority with the kingdom of darkness, and the kingdom of darkness allows God to have certain authority in certain situations, but no authority in others. That is not how it works. But that's what these guys are accusing Jesus of. The only reason why you have power is because you gave in, you compromised. And if that's the case, then God is not God. This is the argument that he's setting up. That Jesus is here for full dominion, and if you want full domination for the strong man to be bound and you want to be part of his kingdom, then you have to be with him and not against him. But what these guys are saying is that the only reason why Jesus has that authority is because he compromised. So Jesus clarifies this. Look, there's a lot of things that can be forgiven. A lot of things. You can even speak against me and that can ultimately be forgiven. But there's one thing that will never be forgiven. And that is blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. You can't speak against the Holy Spirit. Now, this brings an interesting question. What is the blasphemy against the Holy Spirit? I traditionally, for most of my Christian life, have held the view that what the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is, essentially, is rejecting Jesus. The Holy Spirit is the one who bears witness to us of Jesus. So rejecting him and his claim that Jesus is who he says he is, is essentially saying, I reject Jesus. That's something you can't come back from. The problem is, that precipitates the idea that all of the, the, the way that works happens in the afterlife, right? You can't be forgiven if you spend your entire life rejecting Jesus so that one day when you stand before Jesus, I rejected Jesus, I rejected the Holy Spirit moving in my heart. I'm saying I don't want a part of that so that you can't be redeemed in the afterlife. Well, that's a no-brainer. Obviously, you can't get saved after you die. So holding to the view that the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is just rejecting Jesus seems kind of like a no-brainer since we all agree on that anyway. In preparing this week for this message, I read six different commentaries and every single one of them said the same thing. And I think it's worth considering. The commentaries essentially said this, look, you should always interpret scripture with scripture. And Jesus is saying, He's introducing this concept of blasphemy against the Holy Spirit in the context of something specific that the Pharisees just did. So if we're interpreting scripture with scripture, what is it that the Pharisees just did that Jesus just said is the one thing you can't get forgiveness for? And that is attributing to Satan what is accomplished by the power of God. That would be the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit seeing the work of God and saying, that's the devil. That's really dangerous. To put yourself in the camp to be able to say, I am the ultimate authority on the things of God and what I deem as God is God and what I deem as Satan is Satan. I got bad news for you, you're not the final authority. His word is the final authority. This is what he chose to reveal 
to us about himself. And so this is what we go to, not what you think. Now this interpretation to me, it makes sense. Because you can't be forgiven if you attribute the work of Jesus to Satan. How do we get saved? You confess with your mouth and you believe in your heart that the Lord Jesus was raised from the dead. How was he raised from the dead? By the power of Satan? No, you have to admit that it was a work of God and not a kingdom of darkness work. So if you reject that, you can't be a Christian if you only see the fruit of Jesus and point to evil. I see what Jesus did, but that was probably evil. This is probably Satan at work. The point being that good fruit always comes from good trees and ignoring that principle blinds you to God. And this is why Jesus introduces the next concept in verse 33. He says, either make the tree good and its fruit good or make the tree bad and its fruit bad for the tree is known by its fruit. This is interesting. These are not independent clauses that Matthew just kind of threw in here. This is all one thought. This is all one conversation. And Jesus is addressing the, addressing the darkness of these guys' hearts. Don't get lost in where he's going because he's, he's illuminating some very important principles. And essentially he's saying, look, you can't look at the work I'm doing and attribute it to Satan and then also call yourself part of my family. You can't go through here and start whiting things out and ripping pages out because you're uncomfortable with it. You either take it all or you take none of it. And the reason why is because when it comes to things like uh, other stuff that you understand, like with the way that a, truth, uh, a tree works, a tree bears good fruit or it bears bad fruit. Make the tree bad and its fruit bad or make the tree uh, make the tree known by its fruit. Verse 34, you're, you brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? How can you teach the people of God when there is darkness in your heart? How can you bring illumination when you don't have illumination in your own life? Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasures brings forth good, and the evil person out of his evil treasures brings forth evil. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Now Jesus is just, he's rolling with the same thought here. These are not independent thoughts. And he's saying the fruit that you see is a byproduct of your life. So when you're looking at me and you see the works that I'm doing, they point to a truth. And that truth is, I'm God. Not I am Satan, and I have made a deal with him. The truth is, I am God. I have authority over this stuff. So what I say goes. But that, that principle extends to you also because you are guilty of teaching people the wrong thing because you think you understand but you don't really know. So you gotta be careful because what comes out of your mouth, it starts in your heart. And if your heart isn't submitted to him, then the things that come out of your mouth, they're not him. For this reason, every single person is given an account for every careless word they speak. Now, just for a moment, let's break from what Jesus is saying to these guys, given the, the tongue lashing he's giving them about paying attention and waking up to the reality that they are false teachers and they're teaching people and leading them astray. And let's just digest just for a brief second about what this means. Jesus is making a very specific point for these Pharisees, but it's to us too. The spiritual principle is that your words matter. And it's not just your words that matter. It's the words that come out of your mouth that originated in a dark heart. Every single thing you say will be weighed and measured in eternity. Your words matter. But the only reason why your words matter is because the condition of your heart matters. And words start here. And so if you want to change the way that you speak, if you want to change your habits, if you don't want to be hitched to stuff, if you don't want your life to be ruled by addictions, it starts by surrendering here first. Because everything flows out from here. Now, in verse 38, he says, at this point, some of the scribes and the Pharisees answered him saying, teacher, 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 teacher. You're kind of going off the rails here. We just want to see a sign from you. 
So at this point, essentially what they're saying is, Jesus, look, all we really want is a sign. You're kind of going off. We just, let's just forget the demon-possessed man for, some, for a minute. Just give us a real sign. If you are who you say you are, give us a sign. And this is what Jesus answers them. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah. But I tell you right now, something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it because she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And I'm telling you something better than Solomon is here before you. You guys have no excuse. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest, but finds none. What, what, what is he talking about? Where is he going? Well, do you remember what precipitated this conversation? Jesus cast a demon out of somebody. So he's bringing it full circle. He's established some points. He's called them out on some junk. And now they're saying, let's forget that thing. Let's just talk about a sign. He's saying, no, no, I'm, I'm giving you plenty of signs and you're not listening. You're not seeing them. So now what I'm gonna do is, I'm, I'm, the parable that I had with this demon-possessed guy, I cast a demon out of him. I'm gonna use this as a parable for you guys. This right here, this guy, he's now you. When an unclean spirit goes out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest but finds none. And then it says, you know what? I'm gonna to return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house empty and swept and put in order. And then it goes out and it brings with it seven other spirits, more evil than itself. And they enter and they dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. So also it will be with this evil generation. So these people are saying, Jesus, Let's just for a moment put pause on the demon-possessed man. Can you just give us a sign? And Jesus responds, look, the demon-possessed man was the sign, you morons. <laughs> you wanted one, you got one. He's right here. He's the sign. Can't, can't, can't you see? Everyone has something corrupt on the inside of them. This guy had a demon. You guys... Your hearts are dark. Every single person on the inside of them, they've got some kind of strong man running their life and they need some outside power influence to bind it up and take that control. You can't save yourself. You need somebody from the outside to come in and make some adjustments because you don't have, a, you don't have the equipment to do it on your own. You need somebody to come in and bind that up so that you can experience freedom. And I'm telling you that I'm the person who has the power to bind the strong man. And the way that I do it is gonna be a sign to you, but you want signs, but you're not listening. The sign I'm gonna give you is that I'm gonna, in the same way that I cast this demon out of this person, I'm gonna overcome darkness in the hearts of all of you. I'm gonna do it in three days. Remember Jonah, who swallowed up in the belly of the whale? The Son of Man is going to do the same thing, but he's not just going to preach to a city for repentance. He's going to preach to the entire world, and whoever wants the strong man in their own heart bound up and cast out so they can truly experience freedom for the first time, really, really experience freedom, all they have to do is come to me and listen to what I'm preaching. That's the sign I'm going to give you guys. I'm offering you guys freedom, just like this demon-possessed guy, but also just like this demon-possessed guy. If you come so close, if you show up to church every single week, if you act religious, if you surround yourself with worship music and good godly people, if you experience some form of being set free, but you never turn from your wicked ways, you never let your house be filled with the good things of heaven, then eventually what's gonna happen is the same thing that's gonna happen to this demon-possessed guy. That demonic spirit I cast out is gonna come back with some of his buddies and the end of this person is gonna be worse than the beginning. This guy is gonna be worse off than he was when I met him and that is exactly what it will be like for this generation because you missed your visitation. 
You had Jesus standing right in front of you, but you spent your time singing songs and playing around to each other and never truly treasuring him above all other things. You can't empty something without it then being filled with something else because corruption will return. This is the point he's making. Jesus is here to set the captives free. And us, we are free to join God's family. And all that's required is that we believe by faith and then demonstrate that faith through obedience. And that point is where we conclude today. The idea that we put our faith in him and that faith produces obedience. The obedience, the works, they don't save us. Our faith in Christ alone is what saves us. But the faith just proclaiming, yeah, I believe, with nothing behind it, no obedience, no fruit being produced because of that faith, what good are you? What good is that? The faith that Jesus is asking us to place in him that saves us produces inside of you an obedience. And this is where we end verse 48. It says, while they were still speaking, still having this conversation, behold, his mother and his brothers stood outside asking to speak to him. And he replied to the man who told him, who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hands towards the disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and my sister and my mother. So in Matthew chapter 11 and Matthew chapter 12, there are those who care very little about Jesus. They're indifferent about him. There are people who are actively rejecting him. And then there are those who he would call his brothers and his sisters. And those are the ones who treasure him above all else. What makes people family? We are the ones who do the will of the Father. I don't want to spend a lot of time trying to unpack that because what that looks like for you is completely different than what it looks like for you or for you or for me. This is the point at which we need the Holy Spirit to illuminate to us because I want to do the will of the Father. But what he wants for me is not the same as what he wants for you. So what I want us to do is I want us to close on that, 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 that thought. What does obeying the Father look like outside of just obeying the commands we have in Scripture? How do I follow my Father's footsteps as he leads me by his Spirit? Let's pray. Hello again, it's Pastor Marshall, and I just wanted to say thank you for listening to this message. If you want to hear other messages or maybe find out more about our church, you can visit redhillschurch.com. From there, you'll find links to our social media pages, message archive, and ways you can support the ministry work. Thanks again for spending time with us, and God bless.